You're listening to the Story Centric Podcast. Welcome to episode 12 of the Story Centric Podcast with me, your host, Andrew Buckley. It's the spooky season, folks. It is Halloween. And for Halloween, I had to get a horror storyteller on this podcast i went deep into my wish list for this one folks i have wanted to speak with best-selling canadian author kelly armstrong for many many years ever since i read her women of the underworld series starting with bitten which was her debut novel since then she has written an additional 30 novels she is a full-time author She's more than happy to take chances with her writing, writing for different age groups, writing in different genres, and not being contained in the box where she was the most successful. Something I absolutely admire, something that I aspire to myself. So it was great to be able to sit down and chat with uh, Kelly about all this stuff. So I hope you enjoy it as much as I enjoyed having the conversation. But first, quick word from our sponsor. This portion of the episode is brought to you by The Befallen, a new dark fantasy novel by debut author Cambria Williams. The Befallen has already earned several five-star reviews and has been awarded a five-star rating from the reader's favorite book reviews. One reviewer praised the novel, saying Williams paints the protagonist's journey from self-doubt to empowerment with masterful strokes. The fusion of magic and reality, coupled with themes of courage and faith, creates a captivating symphony of words that elevates the fantasy genre. Williams' style is an invitation to both escape into a new world and dive into the depths of human emotion, making The Befallen a remarkable read that transcends the ordinary. The Befallen is available on ebook and trade paperback and can be purchased wherever books are sold. All right, let's get into the creepy episode. It It's actually, it's not that creepy to be perfectly honest, but it is a wonderful conversation. Introducing Kelly Armstrong. I was I discovered you back in two thousand six, I think, um, and you were on my my when I started this podcast. You were one of my dream guests to reach out to, and, <laughs> and then when it kind of coincided with Halloween, I was like, oh, I should I should reach out and see. But I remember distinctly, uh, I worked at a post secondary school in 2005 for like seven years and the receptionist at the desk was reading bitten mm-hmm. um and every time i would walk past she wouldn't be working she'd be reading your book <laughs> and i'm like jessica what are you reading like what is that and she's like it's so good so you should read it because she knew i loved werewolves and so she's like you have to read this and so then i i read most of your your um your Women of the Other World series. Um, and it's, it's it's always stuck with me as, and especially when it became a TV show, I was like, oh my goodness, they turned into yeah. a TV show. <laughs> um, anyways, way ahead of myself. So what's your origin story, Kelly? Where were you born? Where did you grow up? So I was born in Sudbury, Ontario. So you'll some, sometimes see uh, things on me saying, she's from Sudbury. No, my parents moved when I was nine months, months old. So they moved to London, Ontario, which again, there were many years where my someone kept on switching my uh, Wikipedia page from London, Ontario to London, England, because clearly Ontario was a misprint, right? <laughs> so yeah, so grew up there all always wrote um i've been i started reading reading young and it quickly turned into i want to uh 
do this. So started writing uh, young, um, continued writing up and up through, you know, short stories when I was a kid, novellas as a teen, and then into full length novels as an adult, and then sold my first book in 1999. Wow. Turn of the century. Yeah. Uh, and that was Bitten, right? That was the first one? It was Bitten, yeah. Awesome. Um, so did you go to school for writing or did you go and study for something else first? No, like I said, I've always written, but I suspect if I'd ever told my parents I wanted to grow up and become a writer, they would have said, that's nice, dear. And what are you going to do to make a living? Which is a really good way of looking at it. You know that if you've been like writing for a while, you're like, yes, actually, that's pretty good advice. They were very supportive of my writing as a hobby or a potential side job. Um, so I went to I went to Western for psychology. I was planning to go through and become a psychologist. I was graduating with my bachelor's, applying for grad school, realized I was heading into the kind of job where I would not have time to write for a very long time. I didn't write any fiction during university, too many essays. Um, so I thought, do I really want to master's, PhD, all the career stuff? If I ever want to possibly write books, even part-time, I need to switch. So I switched and went to my other love, which is coding. So I went to college for coding and did that until I got published. So there is, yes, there is no uh, English other than uh, the occasional English uh, course. There was no uh, writing. I did apply. Western had one creative writing class, very small, very elite. And I did apply. I didn't even make the waiting list. Uh, but of course, I also applied with a short story that was horror. So now I'm like, you really thought you had a chance with a horror short story? But that's what I was writing. So, <laughs> Yeah, all those applications need to have some kind of literary fiction or yep. something dramatic. I've entered a bunch. I I applied and entered a bunch of those with humor pieces, and they never they never fly. <laughs> no, <laughs> <laughs> for some reason, never popular. So psychology and coding—that is two very different things from what you ended up doing. Uh, what draws you to coding? Like, because coding is like a—it's more of a logical process, but writing is it a is. process. Yeah, and I've been coding since I was since computers you know, black back on the Commodore 64 which my parents got me thinking I could use it for a writing but of course there was no way of writing on those no. so instead I started coding and was coding you know the little um, you know, games the little choose your own adventure games so I started off coding that uh, took every coding class in high school because my as much as I love writing my actual if you test me my actual talent is logic and problem solving so I uh, yeah so I so I did well at at that but um this was the 80s and I went to the guidance counselor one of those career planning things and they kind of said oh that's not really a career for girls and you know because it was very early in the coding mm -hmm. and I was I was young enough to be scared off by that and so they said well okay so let's think of a more feminine type of problem solving which is you know therapy psychology and I do enjoy that so going going to coding was more like going back because I'd obviously reached uh, the age where 
I did not care if the majority of people taking it were guys. And they were. There were four women when I started the course, and I'm the only one who graduated. (laughs) And I was always the only female coder on my team. Of course, that was back a while ago, 20 plus years ago so it's probably still predominantly male I, I would it is i do speak to the coders now and i'll say it's changed right and they're like uh <laughs> yeah i think it's one of those industries that doesn't shift for some reason and i don't know why because uh, there's not a big disparity between uh, you know any kind of gender ability when it comes to coding like it's nope. it's just a stigma i guess that's attached to it i guess it is that it's always like, even back then when we're talking 80s and so it was mm-hmm. even in your know, high school very few girls in those coding classes it was just something even from that point that seemed to attract boys more so weird. I was in Seattle a couple of years ago for uh, Geek Girl Con, and there was a like Girls for Coding uh, coalition there that, that they started yeah. to try to get more females into it. Yeah, it's one of those one of those weird industries. Hasn't shifted out of the archaic principles. Not yet. <laughs> Not yet. Uh, so, where did the interest? come from with uh with paranormal fantasy i mean you write and i want to talk about the different genres that you're writing but uh paranormal fantasy is kind of your 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 mainstay or it appears to be Mm -hmm. your mainstay is that accurate it is i mean i shifted it so it's kind of like anything that's a you know thriller paranormal so your supernatural thrillers thrillers with a fantasy element have always been my go-to um and i blame too many saturday mornings watching scooby scooby doo Uh, you know that that you know right that mix of the supernatural the paranormal the weird stuff the creepy stuff with mystery so even as a kid i was writing what would be some horror and some fantasy and always a mystery element so when I started trying to get published um, because once I decided I was no longer going through to become a psychologist I thought well now now I have to get serious about writing write novels write things that will be marketable I started taking writing workshops joining writers groups taking courses and sort of started gearing towards what I considered marketable so it was whatever was popular at the time so There was a dystopian one. There was a uh, female private private eye one back when that was popular. Um, There was a romance. Um, Yes, there was a romantic suspense because that was how I would tilt it. Um, And obviously none of those sold. uh, And I got frustrated and said, I'm just going to write whatever I want to write, which was bitten. And Perhaps not surprisingly, that's the one that sold because that's the one that I wrote for me, not thinking, oh, this will be the one that gets published. Yeah, writing to trends is always, I always advise people against it, but people still tend to do it because they see something that catches on fire and they're like, oh my God, it's it's worse today. I mean, now when a trend happens and you start to write toward that, that trend is gone by the time you finish whatever it is. Right. It's got if if you start it today, I always say in classes, if I told you that something is is hugely popular right now, you go home, take a year to uh, write it. Even if you sell it, it's not coming out for a year or two after that. You've missed the trend. I say the only way to use trends is if something that you're already interested in becomes popular, that's the time to uh, to uh, jump on it. 
Exactly. Yeah. If you have something in your back pocket that you can whip out later to, yeah. to, to throw out there. Uh, I worked for a publisher during the Twilight um, oh, yeah. epidemic. And I was, uh, we got inundated. The slush pile was just full of, you know, different takes on vampires and vampire yep. romance. And oh my goodness, there's a lot of it. Uh, so, I mean, Scooby-Doo, I'm super excited here that that was a big influence on you growing up. But uh, were there any other influences, um, any books that you read that kind of impacted in uh, the way that you write or the genres that you write in? Yeah, there were. I mean, I was reading so much. So part of the impact was I was reading everything. It didn't matter, even from early childhood, whatever I could get my hands on. The only thing I didn't tend to read were what I would call the issue books, which became a bigger thing when you hit the, the teen years back then half the YA rack or more was issue books. Why you shouldn't take drugs. Why you shouldn't do this. <laughs> Those are not my things. So, but every other genre. So I was reading and that's why I write so many genres is I've read so many genres. Um, early influences for books. Watership Down was the first book that I had read that was fantasy aimed at adults, a very, very fantasy book aimed at adults. It, it was not kid stuff. It's very clearly not kid stuff as anyone no. who has seen the, uh, TV, oh, the uh, movie. <laughs> oh my goodness, the red eyes. The red eyes were terrifying. Right, and the blood, so much blood. Mm. But yes, very clear. So that sort of opened it up to, okay, so fantasy is not kid stuff. Um, and speaking of YA, when I got my adult card at 13, the YA shelves were really bare then. So there were some good stuff. Um, Lois, I loved Lois the Duncan's thrillers because they actually allowed teens to die. So so often in, in those stories, the teens don't act, are never actually in any real danger. She actually allowed her teens to uh, die. So that was great. But didn't read a lot of YA. And like many people of my generation, we jumped straight in into adult and where where we jumped to was Stephen King and high fantasy. So a lot of fantasy and a lot of lot of horror coming out of you know, being a kid, and you were already into that kind of kind of stuff. That was where so many writers of my generation went to. Hmm. I have a real love hate with Stephen King. But are you a Stephen King fan? (laughs) (laughs) I read a lot of Stephen King at when I was that age. And I think what really got me there was his character development. Because it didn't matter if that character was, was going to die in three chapters. He could make you care about that character. And often when I was reading other horror, the characters who died, I didn't care about. It was as if the author knew... I'm going to kill this character, so don't get attached to them. Stephen King let us get attached to those characters. So whether it's writing thrillers or horror or anything like that, the idea of allowing readers to get attached to those characters for the correct type of catharsis. Yeah, I think you need that. That's right. I mean, again, my love-hate of Stephen King aside... And it's not, it's not, it's just simply that I, I always feel like I should love Stephen King and I've read a ton of his books thinking this will be the one. And I can, I never, I never love, love him. They always leave such like a, a bad taste in my mouth. It's all genius. I mean, it is, is genius writing and even for this weird quirky, you know, elements, but I don't know what it is, Kelly. I just can't seem to get it. <laughs> But 
that does feel that the right way to do it, though, is to make your reader care about your character, whether they're going to die in the next chapter or they're going to die in you know the third act or whatever else. I, I think that is a smart way to do it. And I think probably you're right. A lot of people missed up it. And we've been taught through movies since the 70s and 80s that you don't need to be relatable to the characters who die. I mean, Star Trek yeah. used to just throw a red shirt on them and you knew yeah. that one was going to die. You didn't have to care about Ensign Quill or whoever it was who was going to die. Exactly. Didn't matter. Uh, so yeah, that's interesting. So that character development that you learned for, through that, you obviously carried over um, and, you know, happily uh, willing to sacrifice teenagers. I suppose. <laughs> exactly. Because there's no point even as a teen, if you're, you are aware enough as a teen, you're an adult reader by that, by that age. Mm-hmm. And you become very quickly aware that nobody is going to die. So you've completely leached it of any sense of tension. Yeah, and that tension, especially in horror or paranormal fantasy with horror elements, like you, you need that tension. That's how you, I mean, it's different than a movie or TV show. You have sound and light and shadow and all those things to build tension. When it comes to a book, you, you've got to, there's got to be something else. There's got to be threat yeah. or something to make it work. Uh, well, I mean, speaking of that, I suppose the different age groups and the different target demographics that you have for your books. I mean, you've written middle grade, you've written young adults, you've written adults. Like you, 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 you're breaking the mold on what all authors are told to, you know, stay in your lane. But <laughs> yeah. you've written for different age groups, much like I have, and you've written different genres. I, I had a list here somewhere because you've written paranormal fantasy, mystery, and there was also romantic comedy on there. Yes, I was quite pleased that in like within the span of a year I sold my first full-length horror novel and a rom-com which I feel like is some kind of like a genre spanning accomplishment there yes you should get some kind of an award just for the differentiation in genres that's Mm -hmm. yeah that's either end of the spectrum (laughs) Uh, so what makes you I mean okay let's start with the age demographic kind of what inspired you to write for younger demographics uh, that was mostly that I have kids. So, yeah, you mentioned Twilight. So Twilight was becoming big. My daughter was of the age um, to be reading that sort of thing and becoming more interested in paranormal fiction. And she started asking if she could uh, read Bitten. She was 12. So, no, she could not read Bitten. <laughs> um, so I said, let me write you some. So it was me writing my first YA werewolves, etc. that was sort of, that was meant to be for that age group. Middle grade was because my sons got to be that age. They're six, seven years younger than, uh, than her, grew up and said, hey, you wrote those books for uh, Julia, where are the ones for us? I would point at the summoning, my first YA, and say, suitable for ages 11 and up. And they would say, there's a girl on the cover. There's a girl holding holding a necklace on the cover. And as much as we try to overcome that, it really can be tough at that age. So they were more like 11, 12. So I then wrote some middle grade for the, for them. And I really, I stuck with them because once I started writing those other genres or those other age groups, as we would say, um, it really opened up new areas, new ways of telling stories. It's a very different story if your character is 15, 16, 17 instead of 30. And it's different again, if they're 12. Mm-hmm. I mean, I guess you had good inspiration to draw from if you had kids that age anyways. Um, I mean, and I did a similar thing. I switched to writing up in middle grade so that my kids had something to read. And then lo and behold, none of my kids like to read. So that's <laughs> a bit of a, a last card. <laughs> 
I watched them grow up and become, you know, those quirky individuals. And so I could easily write, you know, uh, in, in my case, uh, a, a boy going through puberty who was also turning into a werewolf because mm-hmm. he, um, you know, I, I, I was watching my, my boys go through puberty. Exactly. And we don't want things. So is that kind of a similar, like you could draw inspiration obviously from your own children or to kind of develop those characters? It is. It is. And I often joke that the, you know, best way to like write YA or, you know, middle grade is to have captive kids of, mm-hmm. of that age in your house. You, you not only see them and what they're interested in, but they're friends. So, you know, you can just be sitting there listening to them and their friends and get a real sense of that age of, things that you probably forgot from being that age. I think it's one thing to look back and try to remember what we were like at that age. It's another to actually have the kids around, which then sparks the more correct memories of what things were like at that age. Well, generationally, we like we were dealing with different problems then than what kids are dealing with now. We didn't yeah. have a lot of the same challenges, and they didn't have a lot of the same challenges that we had. So, yeah, having a captive audience. I mean, not saying I'm not recommending anybody kidnap children and keep them in the home. <laughs> That's not what we're saying at all, and we don't condone that on this podcast. But um, yeah, you're right. It it does help, uh, and I, I speak in. I I used to do a lot of um, classes in schools and such too. Yeah, so I would be going out and doing those. And it does. The more you interact as you're writing, then you get the opportunity to interact with a greater number of teens and to see what they are getting from the stories. I found it was a little tougher with middle grade because a lot more of that felt like writing in in a vacuum. You would go out and do the school visits, but not as much when, again, Twilight was huge. Those crowds were incredible. Incredible. I mean, oh, those yeah. um, numbers of readers and how and how rabid they were, and how they it became a social thing that they would that they would read a book and all their friends would read the same book so they could discuss it. And I'm sure that still happens now, but it's not on the same level that it was then. So it was really easy then to go to an event for a teen and and, and they would happily tell tell you everything that they liked and hated adults are are not going to necessarily tell you in person online is a whole different different thing but in person they generally won't say what they did not like no i just like to hide behind the anonymity of social media <laughs> and such but children don't have that same filter yeah. and they will happily tell you what they like or do not like <laughs> that's hilarious um did you read twilight out of curiosity we're now we're now far enough from it that I can that I can be honest, right? Because yeah. this was really tough at the time because my first YA came out in two thousand and eight, so we were right in the middle of it, middle and of it, yeah. so I get asked every single time, "What do you think of Twilight?" And I learned very quickly to go off on what it did for kids and reading, which was huge. It really did. And then of course, the more savvy and interviewers would uh, be like, yes, but when you read it, what did you think? And I did not read it, particularly because it was the biggest thing at the time. I knew enough yeah. about it. My daughter had had read it. I could quiz her on it. You couldn't avoid knowing what the books were about but I felt like if I read them it would have that kind of influence on me so I really had to pussyfoot around that at the time with all kinds of answers oblique answers because 
if you say you did not read it, that sounds insulting, but it's not meant to be. So you're trying to avoid insulting a very big property and major author by saying, oh, I have not read that. It's true. That's a good point. <laughs> I, never, I mean, I fell into the trap. I, I read it only because I saw it every, it wasn't even that I'd heard it was amazing. I just saw those covers everywhere. They mm -hmm. were in Walmart and the grocery store and bookstores and airports and everywhere you went. I'm like, what is it with this book? And so I, I did, it, I read the whole series. <laughs> no, it, it was at the time. I remember at one point, um, there was a statistic, it, and this was for at least Canada for chapters. 25% of, of all books that year were in the Twilight series. 25% of book sales, like like everything. Twenty. So out of everybody walking through a store, one in four had it. And I was doing a signing during that time. And I actually sat and watched. And I was like, yeah, that's pretty darn accurate. You could see people going up to the you know, stack and grabbing one book or another book or two books and going. And it's like, yeah, it seems uh, sort of unbelievable that one in four would be grabbing that. But nope, they really were. It, and, you know, you do get those books that are such a part of the zeitgeist that people are reading them, even if they have no idea what it is, or at least buying them, whether they're reading them is a whole other thing, but they're buying them for kids and their lives, or they're buying them for themselves, because they want to see what all the fuss is about. Mm. That, yeah, it was natural curiosity. And even when I started, I mean, whether you love or hate the the concept or anything around that, it, it was like crack on paper. Like it was, it had enough soap opera-ish kind of elements to that story that I was like, I, will really, I want to see what happens next. I want to see what happens to this love triangle. Like I, I and I, I read all, like all four books in like a month or something. Right. And when, I mean, I mean, whenever books hit that degree of popularity, it's very easy to read them. And, you know, I know people will read things like, like that and grumble about the writing or grumble about mm -hmm. the tropes or the stereotype and I'm like but there is something in them there is something in them that they have captured something that appeals to a very broad audience and it's rare for anybody to duplicate that like people try to they all say okay I think that what's getting people's attention are the vampires not really I think it's the love triangle not really it's this whatever they have captured and that's really amazing but even the authors themselves can't recapture it, cannot go on to do something different and recapture that. No, I mean, they've tried. I mean, it's not like J.K. Rowling has had anything that's been a massive hit outside of Harry Potter, other than, you know, her popularity from Harry Potter has kind of fed into it. But it, it's, it's and Stephanie Meyer, I don't think, has seen the same kind of popularity with since that series no. either. And uh, I know so she'd written some more, but yes, but <laughs> but also it, it's not even what those books are like. It is that readers want more of that one of that. thing that they love. Yeah, it's like a musician who has a hit song and then 20 years later, the crowd's still shouting like, play that one song. Yeah. Because it's what people love. And I guess that's a, it's a pro-con thing. I mean, it's wonderfully advantageous obviously to have a book series that goes that big and that astronomical. I mean, 25% of all book sales in a year. Yeah. It's insane. But then also to have, to try and live up to that for the rest of your career would be yep. a challenge all to itself. Um, okay, let's get back to your series. So Women of the Underworld. Uh, so, I mean, you wrote Bitten because it was something you felt more passionate about, but where did the, where did that even come from? Like, why did you decide to write that first book? And then what made you decide to develop like the entire Otherworld series from that? The first book actually came from a short story. Um, like I said, I was more writing short stories at the time. I was at the point of 
getting short stories published because that was at the time and I'm not I don't I don't think it's the same now but back then if you could at least say I've had short stories published in this or that even if you weren't paid in anything but copies being able to say I had something published would make an agent an editor take you more seriously so I was building up those credits um and I had written a short story about a female werewolf um it was Elena but I had sent it off and this would have been a small mag- you know, fantasy magazine in the U.S. somewhere. And the woman who ran it actually called me on the phone and said, I want to publish this. I really, really love this story. And she went on about how much she loved the character, etc. And that was a big boost and a big, you know, confidence boost uh, in saying, OK, she really liked that. I really like that, too. Can I do more with it? So I took that short story and spun the short story. I had that as, as something that had happened in the past and then went forward and then started my story there. Um, and then as for it becoming a series, Bitten was meant to be a standalone novel. My original contracts say, well, they they didn't call it Bitten. My agent's name for it was Hungry Like the Wolf. So my, my original <laughs> contracts say hungry like the wolf and one other supernatural thriller um and it was after i wrote bitten submitted it to the uh, editors that they started saying would you consider making this a series and i said i would but i'd have to introduce other supernatural types Mm -hmm. because i just felt like there's a limit to how far i could have gone with with just werewolves which then was the awkward of how do you go from this world is werewolves to oh look there's all these other supernatural types out there so luckily that is one of the advantages of first person narration is it's mm-hmm. easy for elena who's relatively new to that world to say i thought there was just werewolves but some of the older people in in that world said no we you know have heard that uh, there are others so then something has to happen in book two where the other supernaturals want to bring the werewolves into the fold and it's warning them about something happening. So that was a bit of tap dancing, but I really felt like I needed to expand that world if I was going to turn it into a series. Yeah, but you did it very, I mean, I'm surprised to hear that it wasn't planned because it was very, it was, very, it, was, it, was, it, was a nice, it was a nice transition. Although now I really want to see it retitled Hungry Like the Wolf, but uh, yeah. the, um, from going from Bin to Stolen because you did a really nice, I always felt that Bin was like a, it felt like a very comfortable warm blanket because it was an easy story to fall into and to feel like the pack and, you know, watching Elena slowly slip back into it, even though she was adverse to it. Like that whole feeling around that book, I always thought was very, very comfortable and made you really care about those characters. And then with Stolen, like you'd made everybody care about those characters. And then you introduce all this, this entire other world that Elena was all, all of a sudden becoming privy to. And then when it gets into, um, into, no, industrial magic was the third. Dimestore magic is the Dime third. Dime magic was the, was the third. Yeah. Uh, then when you get into that and you you start to expand out within the entire world, it felt like a very natural transition. Um, I thought so. I am surprised to hear it wasn't. You didn't plan it that way. Good. No, I did not. And switching to page a witch as the narrator for book three was mm-hmm. for me that was natural because I'm like, okay, I am not going to you know 
put myself into X number of books with with werewolves, even if there's others in the background, I feel like like I need more. So it made sense for me to spin off to other characters. Of course, readers did not necessarily agree, especially when I had in book in a stolen made up page someone who got on Elena's nerves. And that was intentional. You want to show this is not a, a you know, which version of Elena. She's she is young, she's confident or seems confident. How is she gonna get on Elena's nerves? But then of course the reader is in Elena's shoes. The reader is, you know, sympathizing with Elena. So they're like, I don't want to read 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 a story about this page check. Um so I was terrified. But the series actually got a big boost from those books, from Dime Store Magic, because werewolves are a much tougher sell. So once it went to witches, pe- more people came on. And of course, they went back and read a bit, and, and the werewolves mm-hmm. became the, the, the most popular still. But yes, it, the, the series, the, the American publisher was about ready to just drop it after Stolen. They were like, we don't see these going anywhere. But then a different U.S. publisher picked picked it up for book three, and that took off. And that is the episode, folks. I hope you enjoyed the first part of the conversation with Kelly Armstrong on our Halloween special. Tune in next week for the second half of the conversation, where we talk about creating characters we care about and Kelly's accomplishment of actually being a full-time author. And has been for all these years. It's amazing. Hope everyone has a fantastic Halloween. Stay safe out there. Enjoy all your trick-or-treating. Eat copious amounts of candy. And I will see you next Tuesday. Bye.